As we're entering a world of advanced AI, what is the future of books? What makes stories enduring? And what role do literary agents play in nurturing authors and bringing great stories to the world? Mark Gottlieb is a vice president and top-selling literary agent at Trident Media Group. He represents a wide range of authors across genres, many of whom have been awarded prestigious prizes and have secured places on the New York Times bestseller list. Among other achievements, Mark has successfully optioned and sold books to film production companies, where they were adapted into blockbuster hits beloved by audiences and critics. Mark lectures at the Yale Writers' Workshop, Columbia Publishing Course, and Cambridge University's Creative Writing Program. He founded Emerson College's Wild Press and the Stanford Literature, Arts, and Culture Salon, where he currently serves as president. Mark Gottlieb, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So what made you fall in love with books and storytelling and being of service to writers? I think my journey is a little different than a lot of other people's journeys, although, of course, everyone's journey is unique in and of itself. Most people who find their way into book publishing historically have kind of stumbled out of the humanities. You know, maybe they were an English major. They realized, okay, I don't want to be a professor. I don't want to turn this into a law degree either. And so they go into book publishing. And it had been that way for a very long time, although my parents both work in book publishing. And so it was kind of of always expected of me that I would go into the family business and just having grown up around authors and books all of my life. Like, you know, if there was an author who was going through maybe a bad divorce or something, they would be sleeping like on our couch for a week or whatever it was. So I did grow up around books and authors like that all my life. And so when I went out for a degree at Emerson College in Boston, which is like a top school for film and acting and journalism and what have you, they were one of the only schools in the country with an undergraduate study in publishing, I sought that out. So it was less accidental. You have only yourself to blame. You knew what you were getting into. <laughs> yep. I had seen everything. And actually, for a very long time, I wrote it off. I didn't think it was ever going to be a possibility because at the time, my father, who runs the company where I work, was working at the William Morris agencies and running their book department. This is before they merged with Endeavor. And they represented some amazing authors there, like Gore Vidal and James Mishner and Judy Bloom, many, many authors. And as a kid, I would always be in the backseat of the car and listening to the phone calls. Back then, it wasn't on speakerphone. You had these really big phones with the wires and the car needed an antenna. And I looked up to my dad as a kid. I thought it was neat what he did. And I said to him, Dad, I would love to do what you do someday. And he said to me, well, you can't. And I said, why not? And he said, because there are anti-nepotism policies at big corporations. You know, they don't allow for that. And I said, what does that word mean? And he, of course, explained. And so for a very long time, I thought it will never be a possibility. So I kind of put it out of my my mind. And what happened was in the year 2000, he with a, a business partner formed Trident Media Group where I work and I realized it could actually be a possibility all of a sudden. So that kind of changed everything for me. Well, it's very interesting. You know, they used to have, well, it's not very frequent now, but like the undermaster painter. So I guess you're the undermaster agent. Yeah, there's a lot of apprenticeship in our industry because historically it had to be that way because 
Otherwise, what you would have in publishing, which there's still a lot of this, but it's a bunch of English majors trying to make sense of how to run a business, right? Because book publishing or working at a literary agency like a talent agency for authors like I do is at the crossroads of creative and business. And if you didn't have that kind of apprenticeship, someone to learn from at the company where you work, then again, we would all just be English majors just trying to feel our way in the dark or something. So although that's been changing in recent years, I mentioned when I was going out for schools, I said to myself, okay, I could go to Harvard or Columbia and get a degree in comparative literature, but what would that teach me about book publishing? I'd know a lot about books. I'd know a lot about reading and stories, which is also the essence of what we do, but I wouldn't know a lot about book publishing. So since then, there are now many more programs in book publishing. You can actually get a, a master's in book publishing now, and from many, many different universities like NYU and Columbia, many places have that now. So it's surprising. You know, it's so important because we do sometimes think in the arts, that there's this thinking, particularly from those outside of it. Of course, anyone who is like right rooted in the arts knows that art and business, I mean, there has to be something. You have to sell the tickets, you have to sell the books, you have to, you know, you have to connect to people's hearts. But at some stage, there has to allow for the artists of whatever field to survive. So it's an essential service. So I say, it, I think it's a life of service because it's not always a guarantee as a publishing business and it's changing every decade, you're having to reinvent yourself. It's not always guaranteed. There's some bestsellers and then there's so many others. So I do think it's a life of service. And at the same time, as you say, the love of books has to be there, the business acumen, the art of negotiation. I can't imagine the legal issues and rights. And then how do you keep your business head on top of that? And at the same time, still be a reader. You know, the person who goes into the bookshop and putting yourself in that mindset to identify, does this move me? Does it have enough of that spark that It'll catch fire that'll move others without mm. thinking about business because it's still an emotional engagement with every reader, right? You know, I was thinking about this today, actually, before this podcast. I was going upstairs in the elevator and I felt like it's like having an angel on one shoulder, a devil on the other. And there's a lot of stuff that if we looked at bestsellers lists or we looked at whatever's just kind of selling well in publishing at the moment, it's too tempting to want to just seek out books like that. If something didn't fit the mold, despite the quality of storytelling, you might push something aside. And I've had experiences, even colleagues of mine have had experiences where, whether it was for subjective reasons or more so objective reasons, they passed on projects. And I've let a couple of New York Times bestselling books slip through my fingers. It happens because you think to yourself, well, this doesn't look like it could fit the mold, even though the storytelling is good. And so what I was grappling with just this morning, I thought to myself, I have to let the storytelling speak for itself. And it has to be about that at the end of the day, because that will always win out. You know, it's like the adage, if you chase money, you will always be in debt, but it's really money that follows success. And so it's like an artist has to have good intentions, be pure of heart, I think, to make good art in a lot of ways. And in a similar fashion, to find good storytelling that goes on to be successful, you cannot fixate simply on, well, here's what's working well in the marketplace. It has to be about the essence of the storytelling. Yeah, it's true. 
And it's not just the plot per se. I mean, I remember actually, you know, because my husband is older than me and he said, you know, it was a big success, The Da Vinci Code and Dan Brown. Yes. But before that was published, he said to me, you know, there's this nonfiction book, The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail that came out years before The Da Vinci Code. It didn't do so well, but there was a big lawsuit. And basically the plot does seem very similar to that, but within the letter of the law, whatever. And so it's not just that, it's packaging and getting it to the audience. Yes, I do remember that book. I know what you're talking about. And the reason that sort of came up was Dan Brown's a very interesting case to look at with the Da Vinci Code, because I actually know his editor, Jason Kaufman. And Dan Brown, before he published the Da Vinci Code, he had like two or three other books before then. And he was really what we called like a mid-list author in the industry. Like he wasn't a big, big best-selling author, but his books did well enough that his publisher would be willing to continue on with him. And as a lot of authors do in our industry, when an editor moves to a different publishing company, they often follow the editor. So through some books that Dan Brown had done, Jason moved from like, say, Martin's, you know, Macmillan, a smaller publisher to HarperCollins, a slightly bigger publisher, and then to Random House. And by the time he was at Random House, he published The Da Vinci Code. No one expected the book would be a huge success. They simply did not see that coming. And what happened was, which was fascinating, every publisher said to themselves, well, we have to go back into our backlist of previously published books, see if there's anything we can polish up and make new again in order to repackage something similar we might have to The Da Vinci Code. And when publishers did that they realized they did not have anything in the fiction space like the da vinci code but what they did realize by looking at the sales numbers is that readers were reading a lot of non-fiction books like the one you mentioned about conspiracies having to do with mary magdalene and the catholic church and so what dan brown unwittingly tapped into was a huge underserved audience or underrepresented audience that really wanted a fiction book on the subject, but couldn't find it. So they were turning to nonfiction. And then he was able to corner that sector of the marketplace because there were no other fiction books that could catch up. Everyone would have to take time to write them, you know? So yeah, it was really interesting to see. It's interesting. I mean, I also feel it's a gray area. I feel badly for the nonfiction author because in fact, I mean, I feel like it is fiction. I don't think that that's proven. <laughs> You know, I think it's a conspiracy. It's a work of imagination. It's just in the wrong section. But then, you know, there's other things like it's not just idea, it's voice. You have a great idea and it just falls dead. And that's why I think we've had a lot of recent speculation. And we have the writer's strike for writers for television and film at the moment. And they want to protect themselves because they're going to have even less power in Hollywood. One of the things, and not the whole thing, but, you know, AI or chat GBT. I mean, can these come up with Marvel plots, you know, <laughs> but I still think on the written page, it's too cold. I, want, I don't want to read an AI novel. I just don't. It's too painful. I was talking about this with someone just the other day, like how there could be AI narrating audiobooks, right? Instead of audiobook narrators reading audiobooks. But what I think it really comes down to is someone with a soul. Like you said, it's not just the meat and potatoes of the plot of the book, but the actual quality of storytelling, the character development, the message behind the story, things like that, you know, some of the subtle nuances that I think machines, because they'll never have a soul, they'll never be able to fully replicate. They can get very, very close, you know, like I have in a totally different industry, probably something I know almost nothing about. I have a friend who works in finance and he uses AI to help him do very boring work, but to make Excel sheets 
Well, the AI can only get so far. He has to fill in all the blanks for the machine. And so I think it's the same thing with books. I think if that ever happened, I mean, one, there would be a lot of pushback, like the writer strike in Hollywood. The main reason why the writers are striking, of course, is because it comes down to the bottom line, which is, you know, the dollar, the fact that studios don't want to be precluded from being able to use AI in the place of writers is what's really salting the wounds. But I don't see it, at least not in the very, very near future happening. One, because like we talked about, no soul in the machine. But two, the technology is a predictive technology. So it's sort of like you ask it a question or you begin writing a sentence and it can predict the next five words and then kind of build upon that. And it can only draw upon what's already out there in its existing knowledge base from the internet, from whatever people ask it. It's not going to have lived experiences like you and me. And the technology is not at the point yet, I think, where it could be writing a novel. There are a lot of text limitations to it. But I think if it ever did come to pass, like let's imagine a world where AI is like a ghost in the machine and could convince almost anyone, I think you'd have a lot of pushback from readers. You'd have a lot of pushback from writers, people who work within the publishing industry. Book publishing is very politically correct and politically charged. Indeed. And the other thing I think which is really important about the imagination and creativity is you create something, you know, I guess out of thin air, but something you know about when you do research. But a big part of creativity, I believe, and many others, I think too, is what you don't, like there's your lived experience, but also where you have an experience. And so that leads to the curiosity and that fuels the imagination. And so in a sense, yeah, the AI doesn't have experiences, but it also knows everything as well. It has too much data. So when you're drowning in data, you know, have you ever read those books that are just so much research? This is a Wikipedia entry. (laughs) And that's another problem. And then I think the problem that they don't have bodies, they don't have breath, you know, voice writing, Mm. there's a rhythm and we're not just heads. (laughs) And I think another part of it too, is it's sort of of a natural inclination of people to admire talent like authors or I'll give you a good example for one of our audiobooks I think we were able to get like Kate Winslet or Dustin Hoffman to narrate the audiobook that's a big selling point for the book because people want to hear their voice or if it's a celebrity memoir people want to hear it read in the voice of the author I don't see people lining up at concerts to be a big fan of AI, although in Japan there is an AI singer and animation, a hologram, which people do watch on stage. But I feel like that's more of a novelty than anything else. It's kind of the exception to the rule. And I think people, as they follow authors, people want to read the next Dan Brown book. They're not lining up to read the next AI book. Maybe they would, you know, as a novelty or just to sort of see what it was like. Like I, I had my own curiosity when ebooks came about. I was excited to read a book on an e-reader. And so I thought, well, I'll read Crime and Punishment, Bayevsky's book on an e-reader. And it was a terrible experience because First of all, it was in the very early days of e-readers. And what was going on at that time was there weren't really digital files that they could adapt into ebook files or EPUB files. So basically what they were doing is they would take a, a physical copy of the book, they would saw off the spine of the book and then scan in the pages. And by doing that, they would just scan text and have to try and recognize different characters, different text. 
especially like in a Russian novel like that. You had these words, which aren't really in the English language, accents on letters and things, and the machine couldn't recognize them. So it basically butchered the whole text. And I was like, I can't read like this. So I, I went back to the physical book. Obviously, now the technology has gotten much better. But, you know, I could see the technology being a little rough around the edges, at least starting out the way it is now anyway. Yeah, I think that there are sometimes these fads and e-readers. I mean, it's great if you're traveling too, then you can just you know, bring one slim thing. But I think that machines do affect the way you read. Like we're reading a lot more now, but it's the way you read or reading for information, you know, skimming. And I think that that is not to concentrate just on AI, because of course, I wanted to speak about the real writers, that yes. we have. <laughs> but a machine just in a way, as you said, scans. It doesn't understand. It can give the impression that it might, but it, it doesn't understand. It, and I guess that's feeling too, because it's not just the head, it's a feeling. I did want to hear a little bit about your first books that really chimed with you, you know, the books from childhood, and then go into some of your wonderful authors, because your list is amazing. Yes, I do work with a lot of different books. And yeah, I mean, growing up, our walls were lined with shelves of books. At one point, we had a like a library where, you know, one of those last that is on wheels and it's two floors. So I remember always being around a lot of books and in every home we had, we've always had a lot of books. There were a lot of books that I guess, yes, chimed with me at different ages. Of course, I was raised on all the kinds of books that every other kid was reading like Dr. Seuss and Goodnight Moon and things like that. You know, the way people behaved around books was always very interesting to me. There's a blog article where I wrote about this, but there's a very controversial figure in psychology by the name of Wilhelm Reich. And his books are still published by FSG. He was a lab assistant to Sigmund Freud and a contemporary of people like Albert Einstein, very brilliant guy. He is believed to have coined the term the sexual revolution. Some people might go as far as to say like the 1960s and the hippies and all that could not have happened were it not for someone like this guy. But because he had book titles that were very controversial and he himself was a very controversial guy. I was embarrassed for my friends to come over to my home and to see these books on our shelves. Like I did not want them to see titles of books of his. So I would turn the books around. I would face the spines toward the wall, not realizing that when you do that, those books stand out even more. People begin to wonder why those books were turned around and they want to see what they're about. And so my friends who would come over to my home would inevitably discover some of these books of his. And he wrote a book, I think it was called Listen, Little Man. Man, which actually had some hand il illustrations of his kind of crude illustrations, but it was to kind of convey a lot of his core concepts rather than in like, if you read Freud, it's very dense, right? Wilhelm Reich was a lot like that. And so you didn't want to necessarily begin that way if you were a novice reading psychology or a younger person. So that book was kind of like a good starting point for reading Wilhelm Reich. It's interesting. It's funny. You kind of allude to like, sometimes when you ban a book, it becomes this mystery. Like you can't get copies of this book. They have to be smuggled in. You have to put other book covers on. Oh my gosh. Wilhelm Reich would probably be one of the first authors to be banned. I mean, there are documentaries about him. I think either the BBC or there was also a German film company that made a movie, independent film about him. And then Donald Sutherland starred in a music video that Kate Bush did about Wilhelm Reich and his son. I mean, just to give you a, a sense of him, he borrowed radium. I guess he got a hold of it from a lab or from 
Albert Einstein, and he experimented with it. You know, he changed psychology. Psychology was all about you. The patient is very much so at a distance, and he would be willing to interact with his patients a lot more and things like that. So yeah, ultimately, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA went after him. He was imprisoned. He died in prison from an exposure. He had like kind of a very sad end. But I could definitely see people banning his books. I mean, just to give you like some of the titles. Oh, and Wilhelmania, I think, is the name of the film that the Criterion Collection did about him. But one of his book titles is The Mass Psychology of Fascism, The Murder of Christ. You know, he explores psychology through all these different, very controversial topics. Yes, he'd be a banned author today for sure. You know, it's interesting what, you know, the zeitgeist, as you talk about, or bestsellers or banned books of their time, if you think about, you know, Edna O'Brien, who might seem quaint today, but, you know, not Catholic Ireland. So it's interesting the different ways, and there's definitely the art of creating a buzz around something. If you think about the Harry Potters and the cues to, you know, at midnight kind oh, yeah. of books. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I remember seeing that when I was a kid too, people lining up. But yes, almost anything can sell a book. There's controversy that can sell books. Obviously for Harry Potter, it was the movie that really helped. And uh, that's the funny thing. J.K. Rowling did not really make money at first with the first movie. It was in later movies, all the merchandising and things that kind of happened later on. And really what the movies did for the books, getting people to camp outside of bookstores and things like that. And in terms of book banning, you're right, there are some things in book which would be really tame today. And yet, if find some way to offend someone. And the irony of it all is in America, we're all about freedom of speech, you know, protecting people's rights and all of that. You have First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, what have you. But banning books it flies directly in the face of that. Chicago recently had to, it's the only state which has gone and done this, but they enacted a law where you cannot ban books, which is ironic, again, given the fact that we already have laws that protect freedom of speech. So why do we need another law that prevents the limitations of freedom of speech. It's an interesting time to be living in for sure. I mean, I'll give you a good example. My assistant who I work with, she is finishing up her master's degree at NYU in publishing. And as a part of that, she has to do like a capstone project where, you know, she presents a thesis and they all had to start like a small publishing business, a mock business as a part of it. So she started a publishing company that specializes in banned books. Like, I never thought when I was in college that there would be the need for something like that, but there really could be. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I really feel we have to speak about the importance of literature and the importance of books and that intimate experience of reading. And I really think that the difficult ideas, I mean, there's lots of other mediums that can help us feel, you know, maybe music is a way to reach, you know, whatever language, your, your mother tongue, you can touch a lot of people in different ways with music. But with the book, you know, of course, there's fiction, but nonfiction, you know, you can have great ideas in both and really put across complex, nuanced thinking. I mean, it's really where we nurture our critical thinking. And it's so important, I think, now we're living in a, a crucial decade for so many reasons. And the written word is just a place where we can you know, try things out, conceptualize without taking action, which is a problem if you think about our current conflicts or so many things like the nuance, the details. How else can you work that out except through the written word? Oh, sometimes I think fiction is 
is sort of like self-help in disguise. After we go through a journey and a story and we live the experience with the characters or the narrator, we come through the other side with a new understanding of everything. And in a way, like a message has been imparted to us on an even deeper level than if we just read it in like a plain nonfiction book that's trying to convey concepts to us. It makes it such that we've had an actual lived experience along with a character, which is a very, very powerful thing. Like it's no different than that book Fahrenheit 451, right? You know, they're burning books in the science fiction world. And then the guy whose job is to actually burn these books in the process picks up a book and reads it and it changes him. And then he realizes these things aren't evil. Like they don't need to be burned or banned. Like actually they need to be saved. And there's a real reason they exist. So it's definitely a scary thing. It's interesting times we're living in. I don't know really the reason behind all of it. Like if there were a deeper kind of evil ulterior motive, why people are banning these books. Like if I had to guess, you know, in America hundreds of years ago before the Civil War, people in the South owned slaves. And one of the big things that the slaveholders did not want was they did not want slaves to be educated. They felt that if the slaves were educated, then they would rise up against their masters and overthrow them and find ways to organize themselves, to have a revolution. And so what happened for slaves in an interesting turn of events, their masters allowed them to go to church, even though they already had African religions they brought their slaves to church with them and tried to convert them to Christianity. In the process of doing so, the slaves were reading. They were reading the Bible. They were learning to read. They were getting educated. And in the process, they learned these concepts. They saw the experiences of people like them, like the Jews in Egypt, building the pyramids and having to make a mass exodus. You know, it's like a very similar story to what they were going through. So it kind of backfired on like the slaveholders by bringing their slaves to church. In the process, they got educated. They learned to read. People like Frederick Douglass, he would trick other children when he was a child into teaching him how to read. That's how he was able to educate himself. And then he went on to become a great abolitionist. And so whoever's really behind all the book banning, I think it's to control people's minds. I think education is power. And if you take that away from people, suddenly, you know, they're malleable. And then next thing you know, it's like being in post-cultural revolution China under Mao Zedong or something like that. So that's what I think might be behind it. I guess it's a good sign for those of us who are on the side of books and literature and in this kind of fractured media landscape where people say, no one reads anymore, you know, the things that you hear. If you're banning them, that means that you fear them in a sense. You value their importance. And I noticed that a number of them are particularly focused on banning books that are for children. Those books that you read when you're a child that you might read 50 or 100 times if you're learning how to read, they do influence you. They do stay with you. So I believe books are magic anyway, but when we're young, and I feel it's really important, I mean, for advocates like you to make sure we don't lose that with all the distractions and the screens. Oh you know. my gosh. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, if you read comic books, it was like considered garbage or whatever. And now parents are just happy if they can get kids off their devices. And if they got their kid to read a magazine or a comic book, they'd be happy about it. And I think one of the reasons why graphic novels are doing so well is because there's a big visual component to them. They're great teaching companions, things like that. So yeah, you're seeing a lot more of those in the marketplace. There's been like a proliferation of that recently, which is a great thing. And then I think the other part of what you're saying too is 
yes, kids are very sensitive to what they read. Most publishers that actually publish the kind of like a warning label on a book, they distinguish what's a middle grade book from a young adult book or what might be an early reader book or a children's picture book. They make those distinctions. And then from there, it's up to parents and teachers and librarians to make educated decisions. But some children, of course, will read up above their age. And the funny thing about that is for a very long time, historically, there weren't children's books that were really written. I mean, you do have grim fairy tales, you do have Alice in Wonderland, things like that. But for the most part, when children were being taught to read, they were being taught on classic works of literature. It's surprising. Their children's books is a relatively new thing in the grand scheme of literary history. Yeah. And uh, Edgar Herrett, who I've collaborated with as well, his interesting stories all about his mother. They were poor because they were survivors, both his parents. I'm just thinking about the oral tradition and telling children stories that you made up or had heard. And his mother always made up all their stories. And I guess it helped make Ecker into the writer he is today because she felt it should be homemade. You know, <laughs> you want to bring somebody else in to give the love and to give the stories to your children. You give your own stories. Yeah. I mean, I was reading an article last night about how in Georgia, among freed slaves, scientists found out that there was a song, a story contained within a song that had been passed down generation through generation uh, from mother to daughter over hundreds of years, and that the song and its story managed to remain intact. And when scientists tracked the story and the language, they were able to track it all the way back to West Africa, which is pretty incredible. And it kind of goes back to that, what we were talking about, that self-help aspect of storytelling in that, you know, stories really began in the oral tradition because it was a means of explaining to the new generation like, oh yeah, don't eat those poison berries over there because this is what will happen, right? So that's why there was always some kind of lesson in it for people. And that's why I do think storytelling kind of began that way. Probably, you know, it's hard to say whether language or, or sort of cave drawings came about first, but that was, I think, the intention of storytelling. It was a means of, yeah, survival, but also like passing on lessons in life. That's still at the heart of it. Indeed. And it's doing it in an entertaining way and writing for the generations. My name is Donna Sanders, and I am a 2023 graduate of Columbia University, where I majored in English and History. While listening to Mark and Mia's astute reflections on the literary industry, I was reminded of the delicate balance that authors must maintain in order to compose works that are at once commercially applicable and freely creative. For centuries, of course, artists and philosophers have debated the respective merits of aestheticism and purposeful didactic literature. Is art for art's sake, with all of its spontaneity and jeu d'esprit, superior or inferior to work that is embedded with a specific moral message meant to engage as many readers as possible. This is a question that I regularly encounter in the process of crafting my own creative pieces. Much as I should like one day to produce novels and stories that interact closely with our immediate aging culture, I can never quite prevent myself from journeying into fantastical settings, times, and circumstances. I must work sedulously to balance prosody against content, creating plots that simultaneously engage general interest and exercise my personal passions. As Mark and Mia remind us in their conversation, the best novels galvanize a potent emotional connection between reader and author that supersedes mere subject matter. Though reading is primarily an individualistic activity, it possesses a surprisingly communal valence. When we permit ourselves to live on the page, our minds are open to new ideas and experiences that many others have known before. 
we form an abstract psychic bond not only with the author, but also with readers around the globe who have come to relish and to cherish the very same words. Literature might well be this world's most powerful means of communion. A humble, unsuspecting craft, it works its magic under cover of silence, in bedrooms, in classrooms, in soft, shady corners, anywhere that an imaginative soul merges with beautiful text. Mark mentioned over the course of the discussion that a meritorious novel can take many different shapes and forms. We must remember this when sitting down to compose our own artistic works. Literature, though it is studied and criticized by great minds in every age and circumstance, still can never be reduced into a concrete, simplistic formula. It is instead something like lightning in a bottle, impossible to nail down but extraordinary to witness. Now, back to the interview. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you have a broad range of interests at Trident Media. You also broker film and television deals. So you have writers who even come from these other media and, you know, publish books or memoirs. Just tell us about some of those authors and the different areas that you cover. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. We function like a talent agency for authors. And we are based in New York City because book publishing is very much so New York centric. Whereas Hollywood, like if you're in the acting business or the film business, Hollywood, California is where that is. And so we represent authors to book publishers in helping authors get their books published and published successfully, and then to go on and reach a much wider audience. And we look at books, not just in terms of, you know, people think of a book in the most traditional sense, just a paper book, but we look at books in terms of all of the manifestations that a book can take. Like it could be an audiobook, it could be translated and published into many different languages. It could be a film or a TV show, or in some cases for some of our authors, like it's made into merchandise, like t-shirts or calendars or toys whatever. So oftentimes our books find their ways into other mediums. And so we work across a very wide space between fiction, nonfiction, children's books and graphic novels. There are a lot of people who work at the agency because we happen to be book publishing's leading agency by number of deals and amount of money for deals going as far back as the year 2000. Some of my colleagues here do indeed specialize in what they do. Like there was a, a person who worked here who all she did was children's books. That was her thing. And then there was another person here. Her specialty was women's fiction. Or there's a guy who works here. He really only does thrillers, a lot of military thrillers and things like that. So sometimes people do specialize in what we do. But I really have books that kind of run the gamut between every kind of space because I've sort of always been that way. Very eclectic in my taste. I never understood people who just listen to one kind of music, you know, or people who, when they walk into a gym, they just only go on the treadmill. They only do one thing. So I like the variety. I like all the different kinds of stories. And I think it's good to be in different spaces at the same time. It's good to diversify your portfolio. I've been accused of that myself. We do have <laughs> one channels. You know, Arts and not, sciences and everything. It's not such a bad thing. Everything is kind of interconnected the, the farther back you go. Like, you know, in college, I took a history of jazz class and you realize that the blues was sort of the rudimentary music. Of course, it had a lot of influence that came from Africa, but then but it sort of evolved into the, the blues and jazz and then rock and roll and other forms of music like hip hop and R&B. All these things we listen to today can kind of trace them all back to one thing. So 
even if you listen to one kind of music, if you go far back enough, you can see hints of that in every other kind of music. And I think it's a similar thing with books and storytelling. You see a lot of things replicating themselves. The more you read the classics, the more you realize that a lot of authors today still lean on these classics and that the farther and farther you go back, it's like a funnel. The storytelling becomes more and more rudimentary. Some people say, well, everything kind of goes back to that Joseph Campbell idea of the hero's journey and all that. Yeah, indeed. We're all drawing on the same thing. And it tends to be also the people that we interview as well. You think, oh, they're a filmmaker, they're a writer. You know, I interviewed a free climber, Alain Robert. He climbs all these buildings over 100 Oh my gosh, I'm afraid of heights. Oh, oh God, you can't believe me. He's a crazy French guy. He's actually Is fell. This the guy? I think I know him. He climbed the New York Times building. Was this... Maybe he's climbed a lot of them. He actually got into a coma for a week. He was paralyzed. Oh he, he's still climbing. He's in his early 60s. Wow. <laughs> you know what Hopefully I'm saying? He's it's doing like, that indoors and there's a safety mat or something. No, he's still skating skyscrapers and free climbing the rock. But I mean, that's what I like about it. when technology opens these things, we can make these connections. You know, I spoke to him and I think, oh, he's just going to be about climbing and rocks. No, he's like an environmentalist because all he needs is his fingers. He doesn't use ropes. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh, my palms are going sweaty. But it was very poetic and he's written a book as well. It could be like a poet if you didn't know what he did. And he said to me, he doesn't need a safety net. He says, my mind is my safety net. You know, like I know uh, my line very well. And I just thought that was so poetic. And I think so there are a lot of lessons you can learn. You said a book is a lesson, you know, a life. I believe a life is a work of art and you can learn and you can apply it across countries, across disciplines. So I love that you're curious and I always kind of gravitate towards people who have <laughs> this kind of in France, we call it uh, aborescence, you know. Oh, I like that. I'm going to use that from now on when. People ask, how come your books are so, so eclectic? I mean, I'm looking at, you can't see because it's kind of behind the screen here on the other side of my computer here, but there are some different covers from forthcoming books pinned up against the wall here. So just kind of going through them with you, just so you get a sense of the variety. There's a book called The Science of Weird Shit, Why Our Minds Conjure the Paranormal by Chris French. He is an academic at the London School of Economics. He's a, a psychologist and he teaches people about anomalistic psychology. He explains UFOs, of course, are not real. Zombies aren't real. Ghosts aren't real. But what in the human mind convinces some people they've seen a ghost or they've seen a UFO? And then directly next to that, you have this book, A Very Dinosaur Christmas by Adam Wallace. It's a children's picture book like about a dinosaur that hijacks Christmas. And then you know, right near that is a thriller, a graphic novel. Another one's a memoir written by Ginger Minch, who's a famous drag queen. Then right next to that is actually a Christian nonfiction book about self-improvement. So <laughs> you couldn't have like six book covers next to each other that were more different. But I kind of love that. Well, now that's the great thing about working with books, writing them, you know, they can rub up against each other in a way. We can live many lives. This is what I feel. Through the arts, through writing, we can live many lives and it saves us some of the pain of having to go through those conflicts ourselves. I love the collection. And beyond that, Buzz Aldrin, oh my gosh, Isaac Asimov. We've worked with, yes, many, many kinds of authors. We helped Buzz Aldrin publish his memoir. He's definitely an interesting guy. And then we worked with, yes, the Isaac Asimov estate to help them publish some of their existing titles in foreign markets. We put together a film and TV deal for them for iRobot with Will Smith. And we helped with the deal that 
they have with HBO for the foundation series. Wow. So that's the interesting thing at being where we are, because like we exist at this crossroads of where authors and their manuscripts exist before they go off into publishing into kind of other spaces in the world. And not every day is the same. It's like the guests you interview on your show. You meet lots and lots of interesting people. You hear their stories. You, you see what makes them unique. And so every day I walk into the office, anything could happen, which is kind of exciting. You know, I have a friend who I think I mentioned him earlier on the show. He said, what's your day job like? I said, well, I correspond with people. I sometimes write editorial letters. I send emails. He says, you send emails? I said, yeah, I send emails. Doesn't everyone? He says, no, I just work in Excel all day. Like I just sit in a cubicle and I just, I work in Microsoft Excel and I have very little interaction with my coworkers, you know, unless there's an office party or something. I thought, wow, that could be like for a lot of people. And at the same time in dealing with creative people, you have to be ready to expect anything could happen. You know, like there could be a banana peel on the floor that you you could slip and fall on like you know that kind of thing you need to be ready for anything that could happen I want to say also you talk about banana peels you know comedic talents also serious like John Stewart Stephen Colbert so I have a colleague here Dan Strone who really specializes in celebrity memoir and kind of has made his name in that space so he's worked with a lot of authors who are looking to adapt their stories into memoirs and so people have come to know him for that kind of book we work with also very literary authors like Michael Ondaatje, who wrote The English Patient, and that movie got tons and tons of Academy Awards and nominations. We have very big name children's book authors like Wonder by R.J. Palacio, which it's a number one New York Times bestseller. It's still in that spot on the list years after publication, you know, published in over 50 countries. The movie with Julia Roberts, it's set to be a Broadway play with the producer of Hamilton, and it's won every major award. It's required reading in schools. So we have books in all these different corners of publishing that are really kind of like big brands in their own right. And uh, it's pretty neat being able to help books and stories into the world like that. I mean, it makes you feel like it's not just, okay, this is a sexy job or this is an interesting job, right? It's more so that you make the world a slightly better place. Like I could be working for a big oil company, making a lot of money working for Texaco or Exxon, whatever, but I'd just be polluting the world. <laughs> I wouldn't be making really the world a better place. And I feel like like stories help to make people and in turn the world a better place. And so that's for me anyway, the best part of it, other than, again, not being necessarily a storyteller myself, although maybe one day, who knows? I mean, I've written some things like introductions to books and things like that. But I think you get to live vicariously too. When you support an artist and you help their work into the world, it's like you see their dream come true and how happy that makes someone. And then you live for that moment, a very special thing, you know? Oh, it's definite. And those are two special books. I remember reading The English Patient before it was made into a film. In fact, we'd interviewed people who worked on both of those films and Wonder as well. And a very special message, I think, with Wonder as well. It's a story of compassion for a, a boy who's different. So you can tell people all the lessons you want, but sometimes it needs that emotional story. Mm -hmm. As you say, you are making the world a better place. I was just talking to quite recently, Andre Snare Magnuson, who's the writer and documentary filmmaker. He did the monument for the the first glacier that was lost in Iceland, where he's from. And you can say all the statistics you want. You can tell, oh, we're going, we're reaching 1.5 degrees of change and it's still not getting through to people. Sometimes we need that poetry, that story, something that pierces the heart. Yeah. 
yes, something that takes someone there to see that place where that iceberg once was, you know, to go on that journey. Then when they feel it, they can see it, that kind of thing. It goes back to what you were saying about AI and storytelling, how AI can never really replicate this human experience. Like the famous line in that book, Wonder by R.J. Palacio, is how can you blend in when you were born to stand out? Like, I don't think AI could ever write that kind of line, you know? And if it did, it would have just been recycled from somewhere else. So I think storytelling will always be here to stay and it will serve an important purpose. And I'm glad to be a part of it too. Yeah. Oh, and it's so true. I like that line very much. And, you know, it just reminds me a good book is a book, you know, you don't know that you're reading it because it's become real, right? And you don't want it to end. You just want this become part of you. Hmm. Sue, do you have children? I'm not saying... yet. Not yet. I would love for you that You look very one. young, so that's why I'm whispering. Yeah, actually. So my wedding is this June 10th, Oh, wow. And uh, we'll see if that's in the cards for the future. That would be really nice, you know. Oh. I have a niece right now, Charlotte, who is adorable. And the fun part of it is I get to bring some of these children's picture books into the world. And then I give them to her to read. You know, that's like an incredible thing. A story finds its way into someone's hands like that. So it's very sweet. Yeah. So okay. as you think about the future or, you know, read stories to Charlotte or, you know, thinking about the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what is it for you is the importance of storytelling and the arts? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I think that the important thing for people to really know about storytelling is that books are sort of like the oil paintings of new media. You know, it's a very fine art form, an old art form, and a story exists in everything, whether it's a photograph, a painting, a song, a movie. It all began with a story. And stories have been here from like the dawn of time. They're going to forever be in our existence. But I think people should just always have curious minds and seek out stories and storytelling and try to see the story in everything, not just look at things for face value. And who are some important teachers for you beyond your father, you know, as you are? Oh, I mean, there have been a lot of people in my life. And a lot of it, too, is just sort of lived experience as well. Um, but, you know, a professor in college put a book in my hand called Maxwell Perkins, Editor of Genius by Scott A. Berg, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his biography about Lindbergh. And I think they made an HBO film about it called Genius, starring Colin Firth and Jude Law. And Maxwell Perkins was this famous book editor who edited the likes of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Uh, he edited Thomas Wolfe and others. And the more I read about him, I realized editors aren't quite like that today. They can't. Their job doesn't function like that. This Max Perkins was like a therapist to authors, basically. And I realized that he was a lot more like what agents are today to authors. And that was something I really wanted to aspire to. And I still always aspire to. So I think like just through his life, the way he lived and what I read about him in that book, he was a really incredible person. We talk about banned books. I mean, he advocated for freedom of speech when Scribner, who owned the company, wanted to censor authors and the language they used. He was a fierce defender of, of authors and the language they wanted to use in their books. And when an author needed something, you know, they were put out of their home or they needed to borrow money, he was there for them. You'll never find that in a corporate environment among editors who work at publishing houses. As much as they would want to do that, it's hard for them to do that. But I think among agents and in an agency setting, it's easier to be that kind of person for authors. 
That's true. It has changed. You're part of a family and people move from publisher to publisher. Maybe those outside the business might not realize it, but the agent are there. You're their first advocate and you really believe in them. And maybe when they don't even believe in themselves yet, it's so important to have that person who believes and then shares the essence of what they're about with the world. So thank you, Mike Gottlieb, for seeking out those stories and bringing them to the world, for sharing your curiosity and for all you do to advance literature, advocating for authors, books, and the importance of reading. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Likewise, thank you so much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Donna Sanders. Digital Media Coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.